and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me, ju give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over, the, over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Uh, and I forget what they say after that. Oh, this is the Gospel of the Lord. All right, thank you, Jazz. Well, as we've been working through the book of Luke together, uh, today we begin the 18th chapter of Luke. This chapter begins with a pair of parables on prayer, or as some scholars like to call them, can you guess what's coming next? A pair of prayerables. By some scholars, I mean no scholars, just me. Uh, today, we look at the first of those prayerables, the prayerable of the persistent widow. I should probably stop calling that, it's going to be distracting at some point, but uh, Luke helpfully tells us why Jesus taught this parable right there in verse 1, uh, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. How is your prayer life? Usually when the topic comes up, everyone seems to have the same answer. My prayer life is not what it should be. Most preachers want to encourage people to pray, but sometimes the tactics can get a little bit rough. Because most Christians don't feel like their prayer lives are what they should be, it's really easy to preach a convicting sermon. All you have to do is say the word prayer. It's pretty low-hanging fruit, right? People are already convicted. If by convicting we mean making people feel guilty and hoping that guilt will light a fire under them, I'm not really interested in that. I don't think guilt is a good motivator. Sometimes it paralyzes people. Maybe it's because you feel guilty about not praying enough that you're afraid to then take your needs and concerns to God. Other times guilt does goad people into action and also goads them into self-righteousness. That's what it's called when you try to deal with your guilt by your own actions. The only thing guilt is a good motivator for, by the way, is turning to Christ and trusting in his death and resurrection for all your righteousness. Faith working through love is what drives obedience. So my goal with this sermon is not to guilt you into praying more, but to show you the encouragement that Christ himself gives you to persevere in prayer, even when it's difficult. In our sermon today, Jesus gave his disciples encouragement to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus knows that prayer will require perseverance. He knows that it's not easy for us to continue steadfastly in prayer. 
knows that it won't be easy to keep on praying. Well, why? Why won't it be easy? Why is it hard? I mentioned that guilt could be one reason. Uh, it could be doubt. You wonder, does God really listen? Do these prayers do anything? Prayer also takes perseverance because life is hard, because trials and persecutions come, and until Christ wipes away every tear from our eyes, tears will still be there. In short, prayer takes perseverance because we are in this time of waiting, as we saw in last week's uh, section. This is what connects the parable in verse 18 to what came before at the end of verse 17. We are waiting for, we're longing for the days of the Son of Man, for Christ's return. That theme is present in this passage as well, explicitly in the last verse, where it says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So how do we conduct ourselves in this time of waiting? Not by chasing every fake prophecy or caving in in the face of difficulty, certainly not by living for earthly things as if he's never coming back. That's what we looked at last week. But positively, what do we actually do? One key that we see this week is that we wait for him by remaining steadfast in prayer. The believing church is a waiting church, and a waiting church is a praying church. And watchful prayer requires perseverance. So Christ gave us encouragement to always pray and not lose heart, not become discouraged, not give up. I want to draw out just three points of encouragement from what Christ says. So point number one, encouragement for prayer. Why should you pray? Because God loves you. This first point might seem to be between the lines a little bit, but it is there. We'll get there. In the parable, as you've read, we meet an unjust judge fears neither God nor man, doesn't fear God, doesn't respect man, just a judge who fails in the basic requirements of the law, right? Love of God and neighbor. Do not vote to retain him. Then we meet a poor widow who is in need of justice in the next verse. Now, you'll need to set aside any contemporary concerns you might have about tort reform. She is not bringing a frivolous lawsuit to make boatloads of money. She's someone who has been seriously wronged, doesn't say how, but she is in need of restitution. As a widow in that culture, she has little means and little voice. If she's not given justice, she may end up out on the streets with nothing. So she comes to this judge repeatedly. It says, kept coming to him. And because he doesn't care about justice, he doesn't care to hear her case at first. Eventually, though, even though he still doesn't care about her, he caves anyway because she doesn't give up. And his response is, is a little bit funny. Uh, though I respect neither God, uh, fear, neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She already beat him down. That's why he relented. So score one for the, the widow. Even though he still doesn't care about her, she gets her way as she rightfully should. Here's the thing, though. The point is not that God is like the unjust judge. That's why this parable maybe can be tricky, uh, because you, you cast God as this unjust judge who doesn't care about us. The point's not that God doesn't really care about you, but if you bother him enough, he'll get sick and tired of you and give in. You know, if God were ever to get sick and tired of you, that would not go in your favor. 
just going to throw that out there. But this parable, or parable, say it one more time, get it out of my system, it's what's called in, in Jewish teaching a kal wahomer, uh, which is <laughs> uh, sort of Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever for <laughs> light and heavy. Uh, so it's, it's a way of teaching that argues from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus used this kind of thing elsewhere in talking about prayer. Go back to Luke 11, verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish instead of a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the point is that if even evil sinners like us delight in giving good gifts to our children, how much more will our good and perfect and righteous loving God give good things, the Holy Spirit, uh, to those who ask him? So here in Luke 18... The point is that if even an unjust judge can be persuaded through patience and perseverance, then surely God listens to our prayers because God is not an unjust judge. More than that, uh, in verse 7, God has chosen you in love if you're a follower of Christ. Will not God give justice to his, it says, elect cry out to him day or night. There's that word elect, chosen again. Not controversial at all, no potential to get us sidetracked from our sermon on prayer with a discussion about predestination so that we lose the main point on prayer, right? Um, well, let me just go to Ephesians. I only, luckily for our purposes, we only look, need to look at one element of this. So in Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What I want us to see here is the difference in attitude between God and this unjust judge. No one who trusts in Christ is a nobody before the throne of God. To be God's elect, whatever else you might think about what it means or wrestle with what it means, to be God's elect is to be loved by God from before the foundations of the world. To be adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' point. If an unjust judge is going to give in eventually, you think God's not going to take care of his own children whom he loves? 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. So that means for us that prayer is not a negotiation. You don't need to convince God to care. He already loves you more than you can possibly know from eternity past. I think we've all been in those situations where you're praying and it doesn't seem or feel like there's an answer, so you forget that prayer requires perseverance and you suppose that you're doing something wrong. You're somehow not doing what it takes to get God to answer. You're praying and it feels like you're trying to, to scratch and claw at the sky to, to break through, get to God somehow, get his favor. 
at least get his attention. But what the gospel tells us is that we already have his favor. We already have his attention. You're already standing in the presence of God, in the person of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus stands before God on your behalf. The Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans, is interceding with you, for you, with groans too deep for words. So you think God doesn't care about your prayers? Two out of three persons of the Holy Trinity are praying along with you. In prayer, there's no need to cajole or persuade, to try to strike bargains, to crack the code for what words to say, what emotions to feel, what lessons to learn. God loves you and desires to give good things to his children. He sent his own son, God in human flesh, endured the cross for you. The God who thunders, the God ablaze, is the God who loves you a million ways, as we sang earlier. So don't pray to try to earn God's favor. Pray because you already have God's favor, simply through trusting in Christ. Pray to God because God loves you. That's the first encouragement for us this morning. The second one is that persistent prayer is effective. Prayer may require perseverance, but prayer is effective nonetheless. Prayer even has power. Are you hesitant to maybe get behind that point? James, and the fifth chapter of his letter, says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Why does this idea that, that prayer has power, that it does work, why does this give us pause? Uh, there might be a few reasons that we're uncomfortable with this. Uh, one might be, we are zealous to protect the glory and sovereignty of God. God's the one who has the power, not us. And that's true. The power of prayer is not in the one who prays, but the one that you pray to. Just like your faith has saved you, not because of you, the power of your faith, but the power of your Savior. But if God has a plan, you might ask, how can my prayer make a difference? To that we say God ordains the end and the means, which is simply a way of saying that God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people think, if God has already numbered the days of my life so I won't die before he wills it, why should I bother eating food? Well, because that's how God sustains my life, through providing me with food. Well, if God is sovereign over all things and can't change his mind, why pray? Well, because prayer is how God accomplishes his purposes in my life, by providing me with the means of prayer to come to him and ask for my needs. Maybe we uh, retreat from the idea of prayer having power and simply see prayer as kind of a devotional activity only. It just has to do with my relationship with God, my time with God, in a way that doesn't have any impact on the course of my life. Prayer is spiritual. It doesn't concern all that earthly stuff. You might uh, think of a, a Kierkegaard quote that goes around that prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes the one who prays. Kierkegaard, I think, in that context, was talking about prayers of repentance and confession, in which 
you confess your sins and ask God to change you, so of course it changes you. I have no idea whether Kierkegaard meant that prayer only ever changes your, your soul and has no power beyond the prayer closet, but people take it that way, whatever, I don't know. I have, I have no idea what Kierkegaard was talking about when he said anything, and I've read a good deal, but uh, it's not much of a devotional life anyway if you're not actually trusting God with all of your life. Prayer is not an escapist activity. It's not something you do just to get your mind off your troubles, not a kind of meditation to clear your mind of worry and cares and earthly things. I'm not against doing something to try to get your mind off things sometimes. That's, that's all you can do. But it's nothing compared to the privilege of being able to take all your cares and concerns, all the stuff that's weighing on you, and to lay it out before the sovereign God of all creation, to cast your burden upon the one who bore your sorrows, who knows your every weakness, who gives mercy and grace in time of need. That is what we get to do as Christians. I find that crucial to being able to let go of things is to trust God with them. But I think core reason, perhaps, that we struggle to believe that prayer has this power, that it is effective, is we know that God doesn't always do quite what we asked for or envisioned him to do. We've all asked for things that we didn't get, prayed for something that wouldn't happen, and it did happen. It's worth noting that there are some prayers, though, that God does always answer. When we pray for forgiveness, when we plead for the righteousness of Christ to cover our guilt and our shame, when we ask for his presence with us through his Holy Spirit, when we pray that he would build his kingdom and glorify his name, when we pray for grace and mercy, we know that he answers those prayers. And those are no small things. They speak to our deepest needs. And we can know that God always grants those things to those who ask in the name of Christ. But there still are big things that don't always come out the way Christians pray for. Passing a test or course, getting the job you want and the place you want, finding a spouse. Christians pray for conceiving a child or prayers for healing for a loved one who ends up not making it. Sometimes God does grant those things through prayer. Sometimes God seems to have other plans. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what, is, what it was exactly. It could be a physical ailment, but it was agonizing. He calls it a messenger of Satan sent to harass me. And he says he pleaded with God to remove it three times, but discerned God's answer as being, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So God didn't grant Paul's request, but he did give Paul an answer for his prayer. He didn't take away the thorn, but he sustained Paul by his grace, strengthened Paul by his power. So God did display his power. There was power then, in Paul's prayer, the power of God that strengthened him through his suffering. God may show power and grace by removing the suffering from our lives, or he may show power and grace 
by strengthening us to stand firm through suffering. To use an analogy that does kind of break down a little bit, it's not the best analogy, but it's the best one I could think of. When I am forced to do various projects around the house, I try to use hand tools at all, if at all possible, partly because I just find it enjoyable. There's something about you know just focusing on trying to make the straight cut with your handsaw or whatever. Um, also because I am absent-minded and clumsy, and it's pretty difficult to take your finger off with a handsaw. Uh, if I were to operate a chainsaw, I am confident that it would demonstrate its power. Uh, I can't say for sure whether it would be in the way that I intended, right? Danger to myself and others, uh, even with the hand tools, honestly. But this breaks down because God does always show his gracious power for us, and I might demonstrate the power of a, a implement like that uh, in a way that's not for somebody. Uh, but God is for his people. It may not be in the way that we envisioned or hoped, but God does always work through our prayers for our good. Now, if you are here this morning and you're in the midst of heartache or grief and God just doesn't seem to be answering your prayers, I know it's not helpful for me to glibly say that God's working in some mysterious way that's invisible to you. It's not easy to say whatever my God ordains is right. There may come a time when you're able to see and understand how God was working. There will come a time when Christ will wipe away every tear, comfort, every heartache. In the meantime, for all of us, don't lose heart. Continue in prayer, even if it feels like God is the unjust judge who doesn't care about you. You know that he's not. Even if it's just crying out and lament, that's all you've got. Crying out with the ransomed saints in, in Revelation, cry out how long. Keep bothering God in prayer because you're not bothering him at all. Final encouragement. Number three, pray because Christ is coming back for you. Again, this is the context from the previous passage on the return of Christ, waiting for Christ, longing for Christ. What also comes up in the very last verse of our text today, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? More than both of those things, both in the parable and in its explanation, the prayer of the widow and the prayer of the elect is ultimately a prayer for justice. The justice that the elect cry out for is, I'll use the words, eschatological vindication. If that's too many syllables, it simply means the verdict God proclaimed over us already in the cross of Christ will one day be proclaimed before every tribe and tongue and nation and every blessing and benefit that flows from that verdict will finally be ours in fullest measure. It's the outworking of the verdict that Christ has already proclaimed over us in his death and resurrection. In every way, the truth of who we are in Christ now will be revealed for all the world to see, and all the blessings that come from it will be enjoyed. We will enter into the inheritance that has been purchased for us. No one will be able to speak a word against the truth the cross proclaims over us ever again. The world's slander silenced. The devil's lying, accusing mouth will be muzzled. Our own guilty consciences, self-righteous pride will no longer be any part of who we are. The presence of sin and corruption and death in our lives will be just a memory 
and we will see our Savior face to face as we're dressed in his perfect righteousness with nothing left to dread ever again. We will dwell with our God forever in the new world that he's preparing for us. That is what we cry out for day and night. Even when we don't know it's what we should be praying for, when we don't know how to pray as we ought, that's what the Spirit cries out for with groanings too deep for words. That's our ultimate longing that lurks behind every prayer. But hold on. It says in verse 7 and 8 that God won't delay for long, that he will come speedily. Hasn't it been over 2,000 years or maybe not over, well, it has a calculate math. I'm not good at math this morning, but 2,000 years, that doesn't seem speedy. But whatever speedy means, however you interpret, uh, he will come speedily, give justice to them speedily, it has to be governed by the whole point of the parable, right? The church will need to persevere in prayer. If speedy for Christ's return means the same as freaky fast for a sandwich, uh, it wouldn't take perseverance, Right? We wouldn't need encouragement to always pray and not lose heart. But consider Peter's words, Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter, of course, is one of the disciples who Jesus was teaching this parable to and touches on the same themes. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away, and the heavenly bodies, bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's talking about that same idea, right? Addressing the same concern. The second coming. Some had latched on to this idea that speedily uh, meant a short amount of time from a human perspective. They thought a few decades that had already passed for them were, were too soon, or too long to count as soon. But Peter says, no, God isn't slow. He doesn't delay unnecessarily. He's not dawdling. It's not that he's forgotten. It's not that he just doesn't care. It's that he is patient and for good reason to give time for repentance. But when he comes, he will come suddenly. It's possible that speedily uh, there in, in Luke means suddenly, like a thief in the night. It's not that God delays. He doesn't hesitate to come in, answer to prayer at exactly the right time. The encouragement is to hang in there until that time. It may seem like he's running late, but when all is said and done, he is right on time. Persevere in faith that Christ is coming again. So continue in prayer. But with that comes something of an admonition. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's the final word there in Jesus' teaching on prayer, and it is a challenge. Now, I stand by what I said earlier. The point is not to make you feel guilty. But you and I do need to soberly examine ourselves. If Jesus returns suddenly, will he find that evidence of faith in your prayer life? Temper that with what Jesus has said in recent chapters about the size of faith. Mustard seed. Just a mustard seed is enough faith. 
In other words, any faith. So if your prayers right now are, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that counts. If you feel like, I don't really know how to pray or what I'm supposed to pray, I'm not good at it, but I try, that counts. That's faith. Press on and don't lose heart. But if you have lost heart, if you have given up, if you're distracted by the concerns of the world, then too absorbed in what you think you have to get done, and you've forgotten that what you really need to do is acknowledge your weakness and rely on what only God can do in prayer, if you've forgotten that, if that's you, any of that is you, this is a wake-up call for us. If you've been asleep when it comes to prayer, you need to wake up. And the wake-up call is not just suck it up and get praying. The call is to remember the encouragement that Jesus gave. The call is to remember that God loves you from before the foundations of the world. That God's power does work through your prayers. That it does impact your life. And to remember that Christ is coming back for you. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that you have given us through the words of our Savior. That in you we find we have a heavenly Father who is not an unjust judge, who is not indifferent, who, though you are an awesome God, dwelling in inapproachable light, as the scriptures say, yet in Christ, we can approach you. We can come boldly before your throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need, to find help. And all of this you have done for us at the cost of Christ, your Son, who loved us, gave himself for us, took on human flesh, suffered and died for us. We remember the words in, in Romans that you didn't spare your own son but gave him for us all. How will you not also with him freely give us all things? Lord, we know that your will is often a mystery to us. And so we ask for faith. We do believe but would you help our unbelief? Help us daily to trust in the promises that you have made to us and in the power that you've made available to us in prayer. Help us to persevere. May it be no mere duty, but our joy to come before the one who loves us knowing that you care for us, knowing that in you we have all the grace and mercy and love that we need. It is through your Son that we have these things, and it is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.